They were a quasi-state, but they also are an insurgency, and they also are a terrorist organization. And one of those may be on the verge of being defeated, which is the quasi-state. The other two remain, and they remain very potent. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined in studio by Rob Malley. Rob is the vice president for policy at the International Crisis Group. He previously served as senior advisor to President Barack Obama for the counter-ISIL campaign and White House coordinator for the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf region. And from London, Renaud Mansour is a fellow at Chatham House and the author of the recent paper, Iraq After the Fall of ISIS, The Struggle for the State. And David Kenner, FP's Middle East editor, joins us from Beirut. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. Gentlemen, we're here today to talk about what happens after the fall of ISIS. We recently had a piece that David edited called After ISIS, and both of you guys contributed passages to it. So, Rob, why don't you give us a little bit of a pricey for listeners? We have the fall of Mosul, and Haider al-Abadi, the president of Iraq, was recently there declaring victory. Sounds a little bit like a mission-accomplished moment, in perhaps in some ways, but Mosul has been recaptured after a, a long battle. The battle for Raqqa is ongoing, and it looks like that will have a, an obvious conclusion as well. But give us a little bit of pricey as to where things stand on the ground in the fight against ISIS. Well, I think, uh, first, th- thanks for having me. I think territorially the, the struggle is, uh, has been going on for some time, and I think its outcome is more or less uh, inevitable after a lot of bloodshed, a lot of destruction, and the images coming out of Mosul are devastating, as, as you say. I mean, tens of thousands perhaps killed there. Is that right? And up towards to 800, 900,000 people displaced. I mean, it really does look like a war zone. Everything is going to have to be rebuilt. But in terms of the territorial defeat of the so-called caliphate, I think that was uh, a preordained conclusion for some time. It's a matter of time and of what the scale of destruction would be. The question now in terms of what comes after is really not so much the geographic struggle in Syria and Iraq, although that matters. It's the struggle for reconstruction. It's the struggle for preventing the recurrence of another terrorist organization that could uh, emerge from the ashes of, of ISIS. And it's the other forms of struggle that ISIS will engage in. We know that they had multi-dimensions. They were a quasi-state, but they also are an insurgency, and they also are a terrorist organization. And one of those may be on the verge of being defeated, which is the quasi-state. The other two remain, and they remain very potent, whether it's on social media, whether it's in recruiting, or whether it's in the insurgencies that are going to develop in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere. Renad, how many members does can ISIS now reasonably claim as still being sort of party to the group, at least, let's say, in Syria and Iraq? I mean, it's a difficult question because you had different layers of ISIS membership. 
Um, certainly you had the senior leaders, most of whom were actually Iraqi leaders stemming back in the Islamic State of Iraq and Al-Qaeda before that, the old Zarqawi network. Those are, that's a very small group. The reason why ISIS became such a huge phenomenon in 2014, taking over a third of Iraq and more of Syria, was because of its ability to engage with local actors. Those are tribes, those are different religious organizations and groups. And basically, it was able to spread this decentralized model with a very small senior leadership and also a very small number of fighters. Now that kind of lower level models, the tribes, the clerics, the kind of local political leaders, many of them have kind of moved away from ISIS or are looking for alternatives at the moment. So we're back to this kind of the senior leadership, much of whom have actually been killed or, or targeted by in the territorial fight and the military fight against ISIS in both Iraq and Syria. So th there still are numbers and it's, it's weaker as an organization now, but it's just going back to an underground organization. Speaking of senior leaders, David, there was uh, there have been reports by the Syrian Observatory on Human Rights that ISIS's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, had been killed. I know this stuff was out there before. The Russians, there had been some reports about a month ago that the Russians had killed him in a strike outside Raqqa. What's the latest on that and how much does it actually matter? Uh, sure, it's a really good question. Um, so the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights sourced their report on Baghdadi's death to top-tier ISIS commanders. It's anyone's guess how top-tier those people are. You know, um, he, he has been reported dead a few times before. It, it wouldn't surprise me if he was dead. I think there was a lot of griping or, or surprise that he hasn't addressed um, his followers at such a momentous time. I mean, his followers are getting routed in Mosul, they're getting routed in Syria, and their leader has been silent. That's a curious fact. When's the last time we've actually heard from him? That is a good question, and I do not know it off the top of my head. <laughs> I can go on Google, but the, um, sorry, uh, that's, that's um, that I, I I don't know. It has been some time. the The only time he was seen, obviously, was at the Al Nuri Mosque, but I, I don't know if there has been. And an that audio was record. that was back in 2014, right? Right. That's when he declared the caliphate. As for whether it matters, um, I'm someone that thinks that it's not hugely consequential in the long term. When we're talking about the long game, what really matters is governance in Iraq and Syria. Uh, a way to sort of counter the jihadist ideology. I mean, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and uh, the Islamic State have had many different leaders. This isn't an organization that depends on any single person, though, of course, killing the man who declared the caliphate would be a signature victory. But, you know, we, we, we caught Saddam Hussein, we, we killed Osama bin Laden, and, and that, that didn't end the crises in Iraq or, or end Al-Qaeda. So um, I, I wouldn't read too much into it. So what is it? Let, let's start with Iraq. Renad, you've you've written about this. Your recent paper is about this. What does it mean for a body to declare victory? And where does the what does this mean for the political situation in Iraq? There are certainly issues with the Kurds. There's a sort of intra-Shiite conflict that seems to be brewing that you've talked about. Yeah. Um, and as you know, as as David mentioned, the kind of mission accomplished stance is no longer acceptable in this part of the world. No one really will buy that a mission is com uh, accomplished. And Abadi was very kind of cautious uh, and hesitant with declaring victory because it's strange. Okay, the city has been liberated, but you know ISIS hasn't really been governing Mosul for some time now. In any case, most of the pockets and most of the neighborhoods have, have been liberated from, from ISIS. So what does this mean? 
The biggest challenge moving forward is when you speak to most Iraqis, if not all, and, you, and, and from leaders to, to the normal citizens, and you ask them, are the roots that led to ISIS now gone? No one will say that the roots are gone. Everyone continues to say all the same problems. These are the problems that David talked about, the problems of governance, the problems of having a state that both represents the people and the people feel it represents them a government, and a government that also is responsive to the needs of the people, the daily needs, particularly at the local levels. So no, the problems are still there. What has happened now is a military victory to take out some of the senior leadership and to take, take back control of you know, Iraq's second largest city. However, there are many problems that you've talked about, political problems, internal problems between different Shia actors, also internal Sunni problems, by the way, the, the, the idea that the Sunnis will come together now is also uh, problematic. And of course, the Kurds and everyone is just jostling for position in the power vacuum that's going to emerge in these liberated areas. Right. I mean, that, that's that's uh, the point I was uh, trying to make in the piece that I that, that you published, which is, you know, for the United States and much of the West, the priority was let's defeat ISIS militarily. Let's go after them. And we understand why they, they were also plotting against us, plotting against the Europeans. But for many of the actors in the region, even though in the case of the Iraqis, they expended huge amount of human and, and material capital to defeat ISIS. That's just one war. The real wars that are coming are the ones that matter. It's about uh, who's going to govern and how Iraq is going to be governed, not just Mosul, but other areas of Iraq. It's in Syria, the conflict between Turks and Kurds, Iran, Russia, the U.S., between Iran and Saudi Arabia. All these battles were kind of bracketed, even though they were being waged subterraneously, but they were bracketed to some extent as the United States imposed on everyone this priority of ISIS, which really was our priority more than theirs. But now all of these other conflicts, particularly in Iraq, the governance problems we just heard about, but throughout the region are going to be expressed in even with even greater starkness and violence because people are considering that the ISIS problem, as I defined it earlier, as an organization that has a state-like structure in Iraq and in Syria, that problem is soon going to be a problem of the past. The problem of the present and of the future is going to be who governs what, with whom, and how. Rob, you were inside the Obama White House, and I'm sure you've seen Trump's tweets that have championed his fight against ISIS. This was prominent during the campaign and recently said the fight is going well against ISIS. Has he changed the conduct or the tempo of the American involvement in, in this war? Not really. Um, I mean, and, and I'll say this not because... What, you're not was... giving him credit at all? <laughs> I'll tell you who, who deserves the credit to a large extent. The people who, the credit and, the, and to some extent, to the extent that things don't go well, maybe uh, they're going to have to live with that responsibility too. But President Obama, despite what people may have written about him, he really deferred by, by 2015, 16, he deferred to the Pentagon. He deferred to the military. He was ex extremely exacting in asking them tough questions when they came up with a plan. But I can't recall a case in those, in the last two years, where the Pentagon had a request and the president rejected it, when it has to do with the fight against ISIS. They, to a large extent, wrote the plan. They're the same people who are there today. They haven't changed. The CENTCOM folks haven't changed. The military, the uniformed military haven't changed. So this enormous continuity, and it's understandable, because the people who wrote and executed the plan are the same people who are executing it today. There is a difference, I think, to the extent that the military knew that not just President Obama, but his administration were going to ask tough questions, and, and if there was an operation that was going to result in a heavier civilian casualty toll, they would, they would be pressing more. So I think they may have been, on the part of the Pentagon, some not self-censorship, but a decision we made that some things we won't do because we suspect 
that the president and the White House won't approve, and I think there's less of that now. So even though the rules of engagement might not have changed, I suspect that the military feels a little bit freer to do things than it did, than it did before. But the broad outlines of the plan that is being uh, that we're seeing uh, unfold today are the same one, the same plan that was decided upon about two years ago. I, so this is not a matter of taking or giving credit. It's really just the reality that in a military campaign, things don't change overnight because you have a new president. It's the same team, the same troops on the ground, and they're the ones who are trying to achieve victory. So speaking of troops on the ground, the U.S. sort of main ground force allies are the Syrian Democratic Forces. They're uh, largely Kurdish units that have been trained to some extent, and supplied militarily by the U.S. over the course largely of the past year. And these are the forces that are the the frontline troops in the fight against Raqqa. David, maybe you can give us a little bit of like a, a background on these forces, the constituent elements of them, and why there's some serious geopolitical ramifications with regard to Turkey and perhaps Russia and Iran in this fight for Raqqa and the main force that's that's descending on the city. Sure, of course. Um, so the Syrian Democratic Forces, their their main component is a group called the YPG, the People's Protections Units, which is an affiliate um, of a Kurdish organization called the PKK, which um, is in a long-running guerrilla war with the Turkish state. Obviously, Turkey is also a NATO ally, so um, this puts the United States in a difficult position. At the same time, the United States faced a situation where it, it had to decide whether to go with these Kurdish fighters, who are the best fighters on the ground, or essentially leave these areas of Syria unliberated and under ISIS control for a much larger, longer period of time. As Rob said, the the overriding priority of U.S. policy, um, for for good reason, was to drive ISIS back. But now that ISIS has been driven back from a lot of areas and will soon be driven out of Raqqa City, this puts the United States in a position where it needs to determine governance in these areas. And and there are there are Arab um, forces that make up the SDF. I haven't seen any independent reporting on sort of the proportion of Arab forces um, versus Kurdish forces or who actually holds the power on the ground, which is really more important than the numbers. But 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 it's it's um it's a really open question um, how those areas will be governed in the future. The Wall Street Journal has reported in the past that there's some thoughts um, Raqqa will be governed by a local council that is close to Russia that that has some ties to the regime, the Assad regime. I, I've seen denials from various U.S. officials about that. But but if that's the case, that that's a very different governance than um, I, I think a lot of people would would have been expecting. So if I, if I could just jump in. Uh, so, I, I mean, the proportion, because, you know, obviously, obviously this we worked on it quite a bit in the Obama administration. The numbers may tilt slightly in favor of the Arab contingent. But I think, as David was suggesting, the real power and uh, into the international crisis group has done a lot of fieldwork on this in the last several weeks and months. The real power is in the hands of the Kurdish forces. And I think the military, Arab military, would admit they are the best fighters. They're the best organized. And so they are the sort of the, the, the spinal cord of the uh, of this of the operation that does raise two questions. One is the one of domestic uh, governance, and are Arabs going to accept Kurds? And is that you know what does that mean for the future, particularly as uh, the operation moves further south, where there are fewer and fewer Kurds? And the other problem is the problem of Turkey, and that was a problem that the Obama administration struggled with. The Trump administration is struggling with. It's a it's a vital problem for Turkey because they, from their point of view. 
they tell us, it's as if Turkey told us, well, we're going to work with ISIS against some other enemy because the other enemy is greater. Uh, they consider the PKK, the Kurdish group, to be on par with ISIS in terms of a threat to Turkish uh, national security, which goes to the point that their priority list was never the same as ours. They always saw the Kurds as, if anything, the biggest problem, and ISIS second or third after after Assad. So this has been a problem between uh, Thorn in the relationship between the U.S. and Turkey now for some time. And how it gets resolved is going to have a huge impact on the future of Syria because if Turkey feels that it is being marginalized or that the, the Kurds are playing too great a role in Syria, they may well step in to try to thwart Kurdish expansion and that will hurt the U.S. effort against ISIS. And one could imagine, uh, you know, a, a, a conflict between two NATO members is not exactly a, an ideal situation. So that's that's the problem that one is going to face. The more the Kurds succeed in fighting ISIS in Syria, the more this problem is going to come to the surface. Has Bashar al-Assad won? Is this war, you know, are we seeing the dying embers of it? I mean, obviously there's a lot of tinder um, still on the ground and opportunity for conflagrations and loss of life, obviously. But is this a is this Assad's moment I'm sorry, could I just jump in yeah, there for a please. sec? Someone I was talking to was sort of um, saying, oh, you know, Bashar played this beautifully. Um, he was talking about this threat of terrorism before any of this existed. He sort of out, he, he waited out his enemies. He played a long game when everyone thought that he was doomed. But I mean, if you look at this from another perspective, the, the man's lost half his country. All of the country is decimated. He's turned the country into a puppet for Russia and Iran. Yeah, he's going he's gonna to stay on in Damascus for the foreseeable future. But he is so incredibly weakened from where he was before 2011. I think to call this a victory for Assad is sort of crazy. I think that's fair to say, although from his perspective, victory was always about survival. And he appears to have survived for now and perhaps even uh, will survive for some time. So I think based on what he might have feared as recently as a year or two ago, uh, I think he, he probably feels uh, satisfied whether that's victory, that's, that, that is a different matter. I think the real question is going to be, uh, in the longer term, can he restore any degree, a semblance of normal or stability to a country, large, large swaths of which have rejected him and, which he, and, and large uh, segments of which he has brutally repressed in the most unspeakable terms. And so that seems hard to imagine that there's going to be a situation where he's going to govern as he used to govern. I think the country is going to be fractured, fragmented, highly decentralized, and with many outside actors, not just the ones that David mentioned, Iran and Russia, but Turkey and the U.S. and uh, and, and perhaps some Gulf countries that are going to be deeply invested in a country that has become a an arena for the proxy wars waged by others. That too, to add to David's list, could hardly be considered a victory, certainly not a victory for Syria, whether it's a victory for Assad, uh, maybe only he could say. It is survival, though. Is it Iran that has the greatest geostrategic leverage or the most to lose in the region? I mean, this, the conduit or the, the sort of Lebanon, Iraq, Syria, to Iran, to Tehran, that, that sort of crescent of influence for Tehran has been what has animated the youth, the Iran's influence, both with the popular mobilization units in Iraq, uh, which have played a, a major role in that fight, and certainly Hezbollah in Syria. Renaud, to what extent does Iran f 
come out of what we're sort of seeing as an end game or an eventual end game in Syria with a, a, a situation that it feels like it is tenable for extending its influence in the region? Well, Iran has certainly proven itself to be a formidable force, probably the, the, the best at proxy warfare, which seems to be the type of wars that, that we'll continue to be seeing in this part. It's been certainly more successful than some of its Gulf neighbors. Uh, and on such a smaller budget, it's been able to, through soft power, use its influence. However, I think continuing to beat and the, the, the Iran kind of drum and U.S. foreign policy, this anti-Iran foreign policy has actually helped Iran kind of legit, as the, to some extent legitimized Iran in the region in the eyes of the people insofar as there is resistance to Iran in Iraq, including from the Shia in, of Iraq. There is resistance to Iran from, from parts of Syria. I mean, the Syria-Iran connection isn't a historic relationship. This is all Iran being able to use failed U.S. foreign policies, this U.S. foreign policy that seems to support um, certain allies and kind of contradict other allies in other times basically being able to use the contradictions in U.S. foreign policy to say we are a better alternative in Lebanon, Syria, and Iraq. So Iran itself isn't the be-all and end-all. It's just been more effective in the, both the game of narratives and particularly in the game of soft power in, in these parts of, of the region. Wait, there are contradictions in U.S. foreign policy? <laughs> I think Renan makes a, a very important point. Uh, I mean, we could, always, we could sit here and, and talk about how brilliant the Iranians have been. Um, and yet, if you look at where they have, quote unquote, expanded their, their their influence, it's always been in reaction to actions of others. I mean, in, in Iraq, case in point, it's the 2003 invasion. Without that, Iran would not be where it is today in Iraq. It was already present in Syria. I mean, the relationship between Assad and, and Tehran goes back decades. It goes back basically to the Iranian revolution. Why did it expand? And this is not this is not because of U.S. policy, but it took advantage of the chaos and instability and the threats to the Assad regime, which then had to turn to the one country that was prepared to really back it. In Yemen, it didn't have strong influence with the Houthis. And all that really occurred once uh, the war began and the Houthis turned more and more to Iran for help against Saudi Arabia. So they're very opportunistic. They've managed extremely effectively, but it has mainly been a result of the chaos that they have sometimes exacerbated and always exploited. And this really reminds me of a meeting I had, not with an Iranian, but with a Hezbollah leader prior to my time in government. I could not have done that after. But a, a senior Hezbollah leader, when I asked him what would happen if Assad were to uh, be toppled, this was early on, 2011-12, he completely dismissed the possibility. But when he finally conceded, saying, OK, maybe it's possible, he said, Iran won't suffer. And then he, he asked me, who has benefited more from chaos and instability? Who, is, who has managed uh, to, to come out of it ahead in Lebanon, in Iraq, and in Afghanistan, the U.S. or Iran? And that's the point. Iran has done better at exploiting these kind of situations because countries and movements turn to it for support, and then that becomes a force multiplier. And so in the long term, their influence in Syria is probably doomed because of ethnic, sectarian, and other reasons. But as long as this war continues, as long as the, uh, as, as the regime is what it is and it feels threatened, it will turn to Iran as, it, as ultimately probably its one and only state ally. Well, this is a war with Iran as a neighbor. I mean, for the U.S., this is a war in a far-off country, another Middle Eastern war, and there's very little, little um, you know, appetite among average Americans, and I'm sure in the Pentagon as well, to engage in nation building in any serious way. But do you see after the fall of Raqqa a sustained U.S. presence in the region or do we sort of pack up and go home? 
I, I mean, I, this is, I, I wrote about this once. I said, this is the Trump administration's trilemma, is that they want to do three things at once and they could only do two. They want to fight ISIS, they want to fight Iran, and they want to keep a low footprint in the region. You can't do all three. You're going to have to decide if you really want to go after Iran, and I agree with Renaud that this is a very dangerous proposition. If you want to go after Iran at the same time as you're investing heavily against ISIS, there's going to have to be a serious expansion of the U.S. presence in the region, which I certainly would not recommend. Some folks in the administration are. One of the three is going to have to go. You can't, you can't not prioritize and try to pursue those three policies all at once. So at this point, what seems more likely is that there's, there's going to be an effort to go after Iran, go after ISIS, but on the cheap and not invest in whether it's nation building or whether it's uh, having a presence on the ground. And therefore, you're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall short. Um, I would think the priority right now is to not just defeat ISIS, but to make sure that there's a real after ISIS plan in place. The struggle with Iran can be can be waged in very different and smarter ways than what this administration appears to be embarking on. Is that struggle going to be waged via the GCC nations, the Saudis and the Emiratis, as a sort of proxy multiplying force? Is there a GCC? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a GCC minus Qatar. Yeah. Um, no, I, I mean, again, I, I'm curious what, what others think. Uh, having worked on this for years and heard Gulf countries talk about how much they could contribute it's usually been more talk than action for understandable reasons. They just don't have the capacity and the resources. They have enough problems of their own. They're not going to start sending troops, and I think that would also be quite a, quite a mistake. I do think they have a role to play, certainly in Iraq, in terms of stabilization, in terms of helping uh, Iraq diversify its relationship economically, politically, and that's something that Prime Minister Badi is, is, is trying to do. But to think or to hope that the Saudis and others are going to start playing a major role in Syria— uh, I think that would be uh, another illusion. David, um, how has Lebanon managed to stay, I guess, relatively stable and insulated from the this extraordinary crisis in the region? I know your life there is pretty good. You were telling me about you and Renad used to go clubbing in Beirut. I know you didn't want to <laughs> talk about that, but I felt obliged to let our <laughs> listeners know. Yeah. You know, Rob was talking about the influence of Hezbollah, which is still a major political and military force in Lebanon. And Lebanon has grappled with, and I, I want to get into the issue of refugee reflows uh, into Syria. But Lebanon has grappled with what? One point, a quarter of its population, 1.2 million uh, refugees have, have come, uh, fled Syria into the country. And yet it seems to shockingly have remained outside uh, the, the sort of the real the fires of this war. Right. Uh, well, I, I think th there's a short term happy story and a long term story that could very well end unhappily here. The, the short term answer of how Lebanon has managed to sort of stay out of the war is that Hezbollah won. Um, Hezbollah got what it wanted in Lebanon. They, they got to intervene in Syria without any domestic backlash here, and they have control over the major decisions that get made in government. That happened because the Sunni elite here essentially decided fairly early on that 
the opposition, um, the Islamist opposition in Syria represented a threat to them. But both they didn't they didn't want to confront Hezbollah. And if the opposition won, the opposition stood a pretty good chance of supplanting them as well. Um, I remember I did an interview with the interior minister, um, an official named Nohad Mashnuk, um, pretty early on. And he said, look, w- these these Al Qaeda guys, even even these Islamists who are more moderate than Al Qaeda, they're coming for us next. Uh, you know, we're no fans of them. So there was simply very little opposition, real opposition to um, Hezbollah's agenda here, and that that means there's peace because there was no side that was willing to confront Hezbollah and to pay the costs of that. In the long term, as you pointed out, there are real serious economic strains here, demographic strains, you know, between the Syrian refugees and the Palestinian refugees. Um, this country is struggling um, economically. It, it simply has um, some sectarian tensions that it hasn't grappled with. And it hasn't, it hasn't even come close to grappling with the role of Hezbollah on its national politics. Those things will come to the fore down the road. And I've even gotten got in, into its conflict with Israel, which could obviously um, flare up at any moment. No one in Lebanon thinks these conflicts have been resolved or are going away. The only question is when they flare up. So are refugees going home to Syria now? I think, you know, there's, what, three million in Turkey, somewhere perhaps near a million in Jordan, probably a million or so in Lebanon. Yeah, probably 1.5 to 2 million. The the Lebanese stopped um, the the UN from registering new refugees, so we do not have a good count of it. Um, This was part of Lebanon's attempt to stem the flow of refugees into the country. There haven't there haven't been large refugee flows back into Syria. There have been some flows recently of internally displaced people returning to their home. There have been about four hundred ten thousand IDPs who have gone home this year um, in Syria, mainly to regime areas that the regime has consolidated its control. Something like thirty or forty thousand refugees have also um, crossed borders back into the country. Um, but that's still fairly small when when you're talking about the scope of the crisis in the country. All right, so let's get let's get back to this notion of ISIS, Rob. As you said, the caliphate, uh, this territorial notion of ISIS as a group that controls a plot of land and imposes its law on a sub portion of a state, maybe it looks like it is going away. But obviously, as we've seen, whether it's in Nice or in Manchester or in Paris the tentacles of this group extend far and wide. There is heightened attention to this increased surveillance. Does ISIS continue as a more of an al-Qaeda-style terrorist group? Does it get subsumed into al-Qaeda? Is the rift between those two groups so great that the the two shall never meet? How, How lethal is this group as a defeated entity? So first, I think we have to be careful about any predictions. They've proved to be very resilient, very adaptable. Um, And as I said at the outset, they developed in phases. They developed several identities. They're going to die in phases, and they're going to die one identity after another, and some will take longer than others. And they could have uh, progeny. I mean, you know, uh, ISIS, to some extent, the... Uh, came out of uh, al-Qaeda and something will come out of ISIS because, as we've all said on this on this program, uh, the, 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 some of the causes, the chaos, the instability, the disorder that ISIS has benefited from more than it has created, all of those are still there. So there's no reason to think that even with heightened security, uh, they won't find other ways. As I said, the two 
two ways that, that ISIS will continue to express itself. One is through the insurgency on the ground. And I think we have to be very careful not, not to underestimate that. To some extent, they're going to have a great accessibility, access to resources. If some of the much-needed uh, reconstruction funds are going to go back to Mosul, go back to Raqqa, people are going to get more money. That's the kind of money that ISIS insurgents, ISIS operatives are going to be able to extort. That money was, has not been there for some time. Those places have been impoverished. Money comes in, foreign money comes in. ISIS is going to try to, through kidnapping, extortion, other ways, replenish its own coffers. And let's not forget that al-Qaeda never had the same territorial ambition that ISIS had, and yet it was a very potent threat, as we were reminded by Renaud in, uh, in Iraq. ISIS can, can, can mutate and focus on that. And then there's the, for, not the foreign fighters, but the, in, uh, the uh, terrorist-inspired attacks, whether it's ISIS operatives or, or people who are simply inspired by what ISIS says. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a greater effort by ISIS to do that because they're squeezed in their territory, because there's not much more that they can do. That was one of the last things that developed in ISIS, this sort of foreign external operations ability, but it's the one that's going to be hardest to destroy because so much of it is virtual on social media, and you have, as you said, foreign fighters who have returned or just people who are sympathetic to ISIS's message, whether in Western Europe or in the Arab world, potentially here. So that's what's going to be the, the, the a work of, that's going to take much longer and it's going to be, require much more than simply military measures to defeat. Bernard, does it seem – do you think that that ideology is weakened by the perception of ISIS as a defeated force? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, certainly they're, they're, you know, from the way they're going to have to deal with this, they'll have to say this is a smaller battle in the larger war. And the fact that, as Rob and David and everyone here has said already, the fact that they're looking at the conditions on the ground in Syria and Iraq and still seeing that, wait a minute, we've been here before – we know that we can come back. We know that we're dynamic. It means that they, I mean, obviously they're concerned about the legitimacy, but they will be ambitious for the future, definitely. The, as this territory and state has been really important to ISIS's senior leadership. From 2006, they've been calling themselves an Islamic state of Iraq, even without owning territory. And it's always been this idea of the near enemy, that meaning Iran and local grievances that are the priority. As was said, this internationalization of ISIS stemming from after 2011, the Syrian war is, is, is relatively new. And it only really happened once the international community, you know, the U.S. particularly in 2014, got involved in, 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 in the fight against ISIS, that then you had these kind of attacks here and there after that. So certainly there is a brand and it's already being used in parts of Asia and, and elsewhere. But really the brand is just to cover for what is local grievances that people have from the Philippines to Libya to Iraq to Syria, local grievances that people have by trying to use the, the, the name of ISIS and the idea of ISIS to, to, to legitimize. And, and, and there is when it kind of steps into what is the AQ model from 19, in late 1990s, particularly, which is the Al-Qaeda model being, actually, we need to target the West. So there is a bit of a difference there and a contradiction, a dispute between the two models, but there might be a convergence if that's the best way for, for ISIS to maintain legitimacy in the future. What happens to all of ISIS's sort of Unwilling participants or semi-willing participants, the women who were married into the families, the people who paid protection money, the imams who didn't really love these dudes but, you know, didn't object too fervently. You know, in Mosul, there's already been uh, signs or stories 
of retribution enacted upon these, I don't know if I'd call them innocents, but people who've been caught up for it and living in a city that has been captured, uh, as we know, um, you know, like Raqqa or Mosul has been a, an extraordinarily painful and grueling experience. So, you know, collaborators, co-conspirators, I mean, what, what happens what happens now to all these people? I mean, there there's a million still in Mosul, or, or there maybe maybe a little bit less now that as the war sort of progressed across that city. So, what's what does that process look like, Renat? Yeah, and and this is a big concern. The the, the idea of pointing blame and pointing the finger, sorry, uh, to each other. You've already started to hear reports, and I've been talking to people who have been seeing in the streets of Mosul. Former people who, you know, those who were part of ISIS being dragged by cars and, and public lynchings and, and these sort of things happening. So it's a huge problem. Listen, the city of Mosul, the people of Mosul, particularly those who lived there for three years on the Islamic State, are heavily traumatized. They've gone through so much. And, and, and I don't think it's constructive to try, to try and say, why did they join? Did they support? They didn't support. If you're on, This was a state that took over this organization and took over where, where the central government couldn't. Um, I think it won't be constructive to start blaming. Obviously, there is the senior leadership, as I've been mentioning, that, that is already being targeted. But, you know, you have children, for example, whose father is, is a member of ISIS. Legally, what does that mean in Iraqi law? I mean, I mean, there, there's all these implications um, and all these problems that are going to move forward. You know, how would the IDPs come back? How can a Christian, for example, from Mosul, go back and live with their neighbor who's a Sunni Arab if the Christian says that the Sunnis were part of ISIS and all ISIS, ISIS represents all Sunnis? So there are a lot of problems, and reconciliation is really important. Truth as well, being able to, the communities to come together and speak truth and, and, and be able to talk to each other. But it's a very uphill battle, and that's another kind of fear uh, for, for, for a protracted conflict and, and being part of the cycle still. Yeah, I mean, I haven't heard anything about justice mechanisms in any of this. I mean, there's a lot of killing of these guys, but I think there are probably some groups out there who seek to impose some international justice or those mechanisms thereof on this conflict. But I don't know, Rob, I mean, it seems like we're a long way away. Maybe it's way too early to even It may be true. It's also, I mean, this is sort of a, a concluding thought, having been in government. Unfortunately, it's one of the characteristics of government to prioritize the short term over the long term and to prioritize the military over the political or the social or the economic. And I think we are seeing that play out. And this, I fear that it's going to be even more true of this administration. But if we don't listen to some of these, uh, what we've been saying today, if we don't learn some of those lessons about what gave rise to ISIS and what could give rise to something else, you know, the, the, the sectarianism, the polarization, the exacerbation of tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia, now within, as we were saying, the GCC, all of that's going to create more disorder, more chaos, is going to promote and fuel sectarianism, and all of that is to the benefit and to the advantage of those we should be focusing our efforts on, which are the, the terrorists who are going to try to, to exploit it. But unfortunately, people's eyes very quickly tend to shift away from those long-term problems to focus on the immediate problem in front, on, on their doorstep. And as I said, that seems to be a characteristic of governments worldwide. And unfortunately, that if, if we continue just focusing on the military defeat of ISIS, uh, we will not have defeated what it stands for or the politics from which it emerged. Man, I really thought this podcast was going to have a happy ending. I have something positive. All right. I, I mean, I'll try. I'll try. And because and, I'm often asked, because everything I talk about is very sad and depressing. So I'm often asked to try and come <laughs> up with some, some positives when you're talking about Iraq. The sectarianism and this issue that Rob's talking about is true. But there is a positive in Iraq developing, which is 
people are blaming corruption and failed state building as, as a bigger problem and a bigger driver that leading to ISIS than sectarianism in and of itself. Linked to that, you have protest movements in, in, in sort of Baghdad in the south, where you have Shia protesters protesting against their Shia leaders, their own leaders. You have in the north, you have the Kurds kind of even opposing a potential referendum for independence, right? So moving away from, from, from just supporting Kurdish leaders because they're Kurdish. And certainly from what we're hearing, the Sunnis in Mosul and other Sunni areas are very hesitant and wary about the same Sunni elite, their leaders coming and, and being part of the same corruption. What this means is there is the beginnings of a drive towards issue-based politics in Iraq, where people are saying, okay, enough with sect, enough with identity, what can you offer? Now, it's still very early days for, for this to be happening, but it is something different than previous cycles. Um, and, and it is something that the, sort of the paper, the, the research that I kind of looked at for, kind of, that I worked on this year, was what is the difference this time around? And this is a very small kind of difference, the internal sect struggles, but I think it could have the potential, and I'm putting all these caveats because obviously, you know, it's still an uphill task, but it could have the potential to lead to a different type of uh, future. Is that positive enough? Uh, I don't know. Rob's well, that, shaking That does it for me. No, I think <laughs> that's uh, certainly look, positive enough. If, you know, if we could get to issue-based politics in the U.S., I think that would be a, <laughs> that would be a plus. On that note, guys, we'll have you all back when Raqqa finally falls. I'm sure there'll be a lot more to discuss. But for now, I think we're going to leave it at that. Rob, David, Renaud, thank you guys so much. And ER Nerds, tune in again soon. Bye. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.